You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with David McAdams, who is a professor of economics at the Fuqua School at Duke University. He's also the author of Game Changer, Game Theory and the Art of Transforming Strategic Situations. And he's also uh, a a co-author of this textbook, Games of Strategy. This is the textbook that I use for my game theory class. When I was rereading this book in prep for the podcast, uh, Game Changer, it, it made me realize how many of the stories that you described that I've I've stolen over the years. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, that's where I... That's where I must have picked up that story because it really is a book about stories. And when my students take my strategy class, they love the game theory aspects of the class. And I think everyone who encounters game theory thinks, oh, that's really cool. That's, that's really neat. And whenever I talk to management consultants about game theory, they, they say, oh, this is really great. This is really neat. But then when they, they try to actually apply it to a given situation and they try to construct tables with numbers in them and you're like, wait, what? Like, what happened? And, and then, you know, you come to the realization that, well, that's not really the precise application of the numbers is really not where the strength of game theory is. It's really like, what is the, the, the residue that's left over in terms of how these folks approach problems and how they, they think them through. And so when I read the Game Changers book, what was fascinating to me is that most of the case studies that you wrote, sort of the second half of the book, you didn't actually have any payoff diagrams at all in any of those chapters. And you didn't have any kind of standard form tables or trees or anything. And yet they were so, so compelling. So do you think that the, well, the reason why game theory sometimes gets a, a, a bad rap in, in business is because they're thinking about its overly formal definition? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You know, and on the first day when I teach game theory, I make this distinction between what I call science of game theory and art of game theory. Because that book's all about art of game theory. So science of game theory highly mathematical, you you might actually need to make a mathematical model just to come to a decision, right? So like if you're deciding, oh, should we raise or lower our price, right? You're going to need numbers there. You're going to need a model of how competitors will respond, right? So you're going to need to do that. You're going to need that science game theory. But the art of game theory, you know, delivers a lot more actually than um, just being able to work your way through a strategic situation. And as I tell students, honestly, I think, you know, having been teaching this class for like 20 years and, and working on applied applications of game theory, the most powerful thing you get from being a game theorist is a storytelling. Like you become a storytelling master. And this is powerful, but can it also be powerful in some really negative ways too. And I opened the book, I don't know if you remember, but this section on the danger of math, basically the danger of game theory. But we have these stories that are so compelling. So like the prisoner's dilemma is the most famous game theory story. And if you recognize in the world, oh my gosh, that's a prisoner's dilemma. If that idea comes in your head, immediately that gives you ideas on how to change the game. So that's really good. So it it promotes creativity, right? And especially if you're surrounded by people who also know how to think like game theorists, it promotes collaboration, right? So that's really powerful and imagination. But what if you're not quite right? What if it's not actually the game you think it is? There's another aspect that you're missing. There's another player or there's another option or you've got the motivations wrong with the payoffs. You're just 
qualitatively made a mistake, like you missed something, you can confidently just walk off a cliff. So I have in the book several stories of people who lost their livelihoods, who the thing like, like long-term capital management is an example in the introduction. They just missed the game, right? Brilliant people missed the game. The example of the guy who was trying to get people off of cigarette smoking and did something backfired. And then people that literally died. So I have stories from military history where people had a model of the way the game was because it wasn't quite right. They literally died. Okay. So, you know, game theory, the stories we tell can be incredibly powerful because it's not enough to just analyze a situation and come up with what you think is the right thing to do. You have to actually convince other people to do it. Right. And if you're a leader, you have to convince them to follow you. But that can also be really dangerous if you don't have a deep enough understanding. So students walk into my class, the first day I tell them the game theory, you know, now you're like, you're worse off for it because you have that level of confidence, but it's not grounded in enough depth. So hopefully when you finish the class, you'll actually be better off knowing game. So that's the philosophy of the game changer book. You know, I'm just trying to get people to that next level. Yeah. So in other words, a little bit of knowledge might be a dangerous thing. Right? Yeah. Well, and it's the same, yeah, it's the same thing with math. I mean, just in general, if you can quantify something, you suddenly have such great confidence in it. Oh, I understand the world, but maybe you're only measuring some aspects. Maybe there's some aspects that are harder to measure and you're just blind to those. And you, and you don't even know you're blind to it because you're so focused on what you can measure. In the same way, in when you're understanding a strategic situation, you could be anchored on a certain aspect of it and then miss the really important aspect. So that's why I tell students when they approach their final projects, like in my class, they have to identify a seemingly impossible challenge and then use game theory approach to brainstorm a solution. It's like what I did in those last six chapters. Each chapter is like, here's why this is an impossible problem. Here's people saying it's impossible. Okay, let's solve it, right? And we have to come up with a new way of thinking about it, a new strategy or a new play, right? So when you approach that problem, it's really important not to draw the boxes with numbers, and not to draw a tree, because once you do that, You've anchored yourself and you've limited your creativity. So that's why I think the art of game theory should come first. Like what I teach in that game changer book should come first. And then once you have a model you feel comfortable with, you don't have blind sides, then you're going to apply the more quantitative aspects of it to actually reach a specific recommendation. So I went to a talk by uh, Danny Roderick and, and he quoted Keynes and by saying, economics is the science of model design and the art of model selection. And I love that quote so much that I tried to find it. <laughs> of course, I couldn't find it. So I, I, I don't know whether Keynes ever said it or not. It might be one of those completely apocryphal things, but it's such a, it's such a, a powerful notion that you have to be able to figure out when you're looking at a situation and all of its complexity, what is the underlying structure. And I think people who study narratives and stories, they sometimes say, well, there's these nine canonical stories and every story fits in with them. I think game theorists have their own kind of canonical stories. And, and the one that in your, in your book, Prisoner's Dilemma is the one that you keep coming back to. And in some sense, it's, it's like the. That's what the book's only about, actually. And I teach my students that there's actually 10, 10 games. And, and, and every possible game I show falls in one of these 10 categories. And there's two really important ones. And the book Game Changers is about one of those two, which is called The Prisoner's Dilemma. Uh, yeah, and so, you know, originally it was funny when I proposed the book to the publisher, I was going to have a chapter on each of the main types of games. Like I was going to pick five of those 10 and you know, like have a whole thing on it. But I kept on having so much to say about Prisoner's Dilemma, it was really awkward. 
<laughs> right? So I'm like, forget it. I'm just gonna write the entire thing about the prisoner's dilemma. But you see all the ways that you can use game theory ideas to escape the prisoner's dilemma. Like a problem that seems like it might be really hard to solve. There's actually tons of solutions. And, you know, we are solving the prisoner's dilemma all the time in our life. It's just we're actually not aware of it. It's actually opening people's eyes to how we're already solving prisoner's dilemma problems. I'll give you an example that's so obvious you just don't even notice it. It's a transaction. So every transaction you've ever done is a prisoner's dilemma. So let me, let me explain why. So remember, prisoner's dilemma is a situation where each player has a dominant strategy. So something that's best for them, holding fixed what the other person does but we're all worse off when we do what's best for ourselves. So let's say I have something of value to you. So let's say it's worth some money to you, right? It's not worth very much to me. And you offer to pay me some cash. So now the strategy, the payoff matrix is give, not give, pay, not pay. Now, if I'm giving you the object, what's your incentive? Holding fixed that you're, I'm giving it to you. Yeah, not to perform. Not pay. Like, why? Why pay? Why pay? You already gave me the thing. I don't need to pay you. Right. And if I don't give it to you, obviously you don't want to pay. So holding fixed, what I do, you have an incentive not to do your part of the deal. Because the essence of a transaction is we each give up something that we care about, but we get something that's better for both of us. Right. It's a collective action problem. Mm -hmm. So yeah. every transaction that happens in any aspect of life, social, financial, commercial, whatever, it's solving a prisoner's dilemma. But we solve these prisoner's dilemmas with such ease. And in so many ways that we don't even think about. But if you actually like put a microscope on, well, how did that work? Like when I get my lunch today, I, get, I paid for lunch. Like, why did that work? You know, like, or when I, you know, exchange favors with a friend, like, why did that work? Because if you think about those, it actually it opens your eyes to ways to solve prison dilemmas that are harder to solve. Right. And I think you make the point that regulation comes in many forms. Any kind of collectivity is essentially some kind of regulatory architecture. A firm is essentially like a miniature regulatory body. I mean, a family is like a miniature regulatory body. A little instance of bilateral contracting is essentially participating in the regulatory body of, of the court, right? So, and presumably all of the marketplaces, you know, Uber, eBay, Airbnb, these are all regulatory structures that are designed to overcome prisoners' dilemmas. Yeah, so re regulation is one of the chapters. You know, each chapter in the first part of the book is a way to escape and prisoner's mm -hmm. dilemma. And but when I say regulation, I a lot of that word is loaded with a lot of specific institutional details. All I mean when I say that is a regulator is a third party that's changing the payoffs or changing the options. So someone who doesn't allow, like a parent who doesn't allow a child to do something is regulating the game the child is playing, right? So government regulators are an example. Firms are examples. Platforms are maybe examples. But it, it could be much broader. So yeah, so, so we've been changed. The easiest way to solve a prisoner's dilemma is just to directly change the numbers in the boxes. Right? You can do that through penalties, like speeding, fine, right? That might be a penalty or, or, or a reward or an inducement to do a better behavior. So like the taxes and subsidies, like all these things are examples of what I would, when I refer to as regulation in the book, just changing the actual payoffs and incentives. Right. But you said that the book is about solving prisoners' dilemmas, but it's, it's not just about solving prisoners' dilemmas. It's also about <laughs> disrupting, right, solutions to prisoners' dilemma. Because sometimes... Yeah, yeah, I thought you were going in. Yeah, the book is very broad. It's about giving you a window into what it means to be a game theorist and hopefully encouraging readers to, to want to grow in that direction and build that skill. It's like a muscle, you know? It's like, 
I have very strong game theory muscles because I've been teaching game theory to thousands of students now for the years and mentoring them through this final project thing where they're solving impossible problems. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Prisoners, the, the dilemma is in the eye of the beholder. You know, so when competing firms have individual incentive to offer low prices, but they don't like that. We on the outside call that competition and say it's good. From the inside, that's called like low profits and that's, that's bad. So their solution to prisons to limit is called collusion, right? You know, and so, um, or the example I use in the book of the mob never talking to the police. So Omerta, you know, the code of silence, that's a solution to a prison dilemma for them. It's good for them, but bad for, you know, the FBI or whatever. So sometimes we want to stop players from solving their prisoners to live us. But if you go understand the toolkit, like the ways to escape it, you can neutralize, you can neutralize the toolkit. Some people say that when people are exposed to economics, and I think there's some empirical work on this, that they, they behave in more selfish ways, right? So in other words, they are more likely to defect. They're more likely to free ride and so forth. For me, as an individually, I've I've actually gone the opposite direction, right? The more I become aware of the negative externalities I'm imposing on others, the more I restrain my behavior in that direction. And the more I, I realize that I'm participating in a prisoner's dilemma, the more, quote, irrational, I, I, irrational I behave, right? I just sort of act as if, you know, there were some kind of third-party enforcement, even when there isn't. I, I guess I'm asking you to speculate. Can... Familiarity with game theory make you a better person? I make that argument. You know, so you can understand how being trained as an analyst, just in general, could kind of disassociate you from other aspects of life, right? Like, they're just like the measurement, you know, quandary I've mentioned before. Like, certain things you measure, that's what you think about. Certain things you aren't measuring, you're not thinking about. And you can sort of lose touch to that. And, and that could happen with empathy, you know? So if you're being trained in solving optimization problems and you're not thinking about the human costs of that on others, but game theory works in the opposite direction. So if you think about it, I mean, you could teach economics in a way that builds empathy, just like you said, for sure. It's like you teach people about externalities, just like you teach them about some costs, right? So you could solve like two problems that humans have, right? You can use economics to improve our lives in lots of ways, but but let's think about what game theory does. If you're taking a game theory class, what's the first thing you're told to do? It's that you have to think from others' points of view, right? If you do some action, you have to think about how others will react. But how do you know how they're going to react? You have to actually think about what their motivations are, what they care about. So you are required to, to understand other people, right? And moreover, as you start thinking about these collective action problems, you start having that mindset of, well, we can make we can make everyone better off. It's not just about me versus other people. Then you start looking for ways to work together as well. And so you could become more collaborative person as well, as opposed to more, not just self-oriented, but you know, I'm in control of my destiny. I'm optimizing this all the time. I'm so good, right? So I think being a game theorist would just very naturally move you in that direction. But again, only if you go deep enough. If you have a shallow understanding of this stuff, it could lead you to think, oh, I just got to deceive others. You know, like one thing, like, is deception good? What does game theory say? The shallow level, well, in, in the case of warfare, maybe Suns is right. Deception is, the, is really important in a, in a zero-sum game. But in all the other types of games, 
there's just, if, if, if you're known for being someone who will lie whenever it suits you, people will listen to you when it's in your interest to make a commitment or something like that, you know, to communicate something credible, right? So kind of game theory tilts you toward being an honorable person, just strategically, even if you're not honorable, you should try to act honorably and get a reputation for being honorable. But I think it also can, can build empathy and, you know, make you a, a better and more well-rounded person. Right. And so there are other examples that you reference where you see it all around us, things where, you know, you have races to the bottom or races to the top. I mean, one of my favorite examples, of course, is, you know, like SAT prep, right? So I know, <laughs> yeah, that's a fun, that was a fun one to do. That was 10 years ago I wrote that, but it's still like, I, I predict, because actually the, the point of that example, which by the way, was about the evolving uh, standards for admission to college and how SAT and AP and it's like, I, the point of that example is actually we're never getting to equilibrium. The world is always out of equilibrium, right? And so, you know, the AP craze gets replaced by some other thing and the SAT optional and all this. So, um, and we're seeing that playing out still today. Like the SAT optional thing that I talked about and was just sort of getting going back then is like, you know, where we're still, we're still moving in that direction. But there's going to be problems with what they're doing now, right? It's like, we can foresee it. It's not like, and a nice thing is, is if you think like a game theorist, you're a little one step ahead. So if you have a ninth grade kid, you can actually give them some good advice. It's like, okay, two years from now, and it's going to be destroyed because we're moving around in this spiral, right? So. <laughs> but, but if you try to check out of that, I mean, if you try to say to your kids like, hey, you know, just skip all that and just focus on pursuing wisdom and knowledge, then you're kind of screwed, right? I mean, they're not going to get into the school that you, you, you're hoping that they, they get into. I mean, there's so many examples where people know that they're, they're being dragged along and, and compelled to do something, which doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but what about grade inflation? So as, as a professor, I'm under a great deal of pressure to, on the one hand, you know, hand out as many high grades as possible. And then every now and then the, the administration will be like, now remember, you know, you gotta, you gotta stick to this curve, but it doesn't really, you know, my, my interest lies in giving out lots of A's, right? Unless there's a real strong, compelling constraint that's imposed from above, we're, we're all just going to race to the bottom. And, and I think that, you know, at a university level, some universities have tried this. I think Princeton tried to impose some kind of system-wide constraint on grade inflation at the undergraduate level, and they had to abandon it, right? Right. That's a fascinating example. I mean, we, we have, you know, rules and standards here as well. And, you know, the game theory standards is, is a fascinating, uh, fascinating field. And when can you credibly maintain a standard? Yes, we, we have that. That issue arises in, in, in so many domains. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the other area is, is professional responsibility. So now you focus on primarily on, on, on doctors, right? And their in, sort of incentives to prescribe pain relievers. I mean, this is 2014 that you wrote this book, but you know, the problem just got bigger after that in pursuit of kind of positive evaluations and positive customer feedback. But I think you see that in every profession, right? Architects are going to give the customer what they want. Lawyers are going to give the customers what they want. Doctors are going to give the customers what they want. And so what's the role of professional responsibility here? Not just sort of norms, but professional associations who can kind of constrain this kind of race to the race to the bottom. Do we have mechanisms and tools that can, can kind of help us with that? Yeah. So let's think about, so, so just for context for the listeners, you're, you're referring to a vignette in the, in the, in the book 
one of these seemingly impossible challenges, which is inappropriate pain prescriptions in the emergency room, right? And so how do you not give someone pain medicine in the emergency room, even though you know they might be addicted and inappropriately, you know, seeking these drugs, maybe their drug dealers are going to sell them later outside. And one, it turns out that one reason why it's so hard to say no for emergency physicians back then, but actually still some today, is that patients get a satisfaction form in the mail about three days after they leave. The satisfaction form is about three, had about, this is 10 years ago, I did the research, 2012, I really, and about 3% return rate, okay? And it mattered a lot. Every time you got a negative feedback, you'd be called out of the office, basically. And the reason it mattered a lot was that the emergency department got money based on these scores. And the entity that ran the scoring system actually was a for-profit firm that had been purchased by a, a, a private equity. Okay, so they were, they were leveraging this mechanism they had for establishing ratings to earn money through consulting to hospitals on how to improve their ratings. And by improving ratings in the emergency room isn't what you really should do. You should be just like saving lives and not giving people opioids unless they really need them. Right. So, so that seemingly impossible problem, you know, there's lots of ways to change it. One is just, you know, recognizing where there might be a perverse incentive and then uh, working against it. But I mean, as you mentioned, you do need to have uh, a player high enough in the game to change it. So for example, one obvious thing is that the, the federal government, so Senator, you know, CMS, they should not be rewarding hospitals, giving them money based on satisfaction scores in emergency like They should just recognize, and in particular, they shouldn't do it for pain medication. Because, you know, in the satisfaction form, there's something about why pain was treated appropriately. Like that, that question shouldn't be determining how much money the hospital gets or whether the emergency doctor gets fired or not. That, that should be taken out. So there's some easy fixes, but you're also pointing to some deeper issues, which have to do with kind of the, the fun foundations of motivation. You know, so when we talk about professions, right, we're not just talking about an occupation, right? But traditionally there is, it's an identification. So you, 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 I am a lawyer, I am an economist. And so that comes with certain expectations for how I ought to behave, right? And so that should change my motivations. If we're all just out to make money, then we're not acting based on that, any ethical considerations or any sense of obligation. So I think there's a huge value to the professions, like a bona fide profession, codes of conduct people actually believe in, ethical standards, you know, but these are things that are inculcated, right? It's, it's, it's part of your training, your multi-year training. And, and, you know, is that happening in, in the professions, in law schools and medical schools? Is it changing? Well, I actually took professional responsibility at the law school down at, at when I was at Duke and the whole point of the class was was not it was not like okay here are the rules follow them it was more trying to cultivate this sense that you're part of this community and you know the respect of your peers is super important but in the world of of business we don't have that right and and i think the the larger the communities the more likely it is that that's going to get kind of eroded right so if you think back to the example of the fisheries right and overfishing it's hard to imagine that you could construct it. I mean, maybe, you know, you can have the closed community of lobster fishermen, you know, in some small town in Maine. But if you're thinking about the open seas, 
right? It's hard to imagine that a, a Chinese fishing boat is going to care what the Icelandic fishing boat folks think about them, right? So there's no real you know, normative culture that's going to ever inspire restraint on the part of the, the fishermen, right? Well, I mean, can I try to push back on that? So when we stay in the world of business, you know, I really think there is something to a business person, a leader who has a broader view of stakeholders. The way I explain it to my students, you think about the pie that's being created by an enterprise, like the total value and where that value is being divided. We have a, you have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize a slice to a particular group, right? Your, your shareholders. But you can increase the size of what you can give the shareholders if you can increase the overall pie. So it's not like you got to screw the workers in order to maximize value to the shareholders. And if you are uh, a leader who people know cares about workers, then you can get them to do things they wouldn't normally do. This is a game. So if you're a different type of leader, you can potentially unlock sources of value that, you know, the normal mercenary type person wouldn't be able to do. And so to the extent that that's true, then there could be a real reputational value to, to, to being a different type of business leader. So we wouldn't actually be in a prisoner's dilemma in that case. It wouldn't be a case where, oh, we all have an incentive to screw over, just maximize our, our own welfare. Does that require driving a wedge between kind of the shareholders and the managers to some degree, right? To give them a little bit more discretion, a little bit more business judgment so that they can... Are there situations where you might want to increase agency costs in order to... There are a couple of examples, right, where, you know, you want to give your negotiator the ability to negotiate without interference from the principal, right? <laughs> are there other scenarios where that might actually make sense? Yeah, I'll tell you two, two books that this reminds me of that are really great reads. So, so Henry Hansman has this book called Ownership of Enterprise that I signed a chapter out of. And he basically argues like, well, let's think about why many firms are owned by shareholders. Like, why does it make sense for the shareholders to be in charge? They don't have special information. They're not like giving guidance uh, to the manager. They're not important to the operation of the firm other than having provided capital, like money, right? So why do they have control, ultimate control? And his story, I, I can't say for sure this is true. There are other stories that are also pretty compelling, but his story is, well, if you gave control to anyone else, they'd screw it up. So if you let the workers be in charge of most businesses, they might just very naturally raise their wages without doing much else, and then that could shrink the pie. You know, uh, if you gave it to suppliers, then they would just raise the price they got paid and, and shrink the pie. And so by giving control to a, to a party that doesn't have much information or much, you know, that doesn't have the ability to control the managers either, because with a lot of dispersed shareholders, then the manager will be freer to take actions. And so under that story, the rise of sort of activist investors and better organized investors, more effective control for, by investors could backfire for some firms. And if that were true, some of the firms would, would choose to go, go private um, because of that. Now, one of the things that we, we were talking about earlier is this idea that data science is kind of taking over the world. And everyone's using data. I teach a course on, on data science. And one thing that a lot of data scientists overlook is maybe the strategic response of the folks whose behavior they're trying to predict, right? And I, I think of this sort of as almost like the curse of, of ceteris paribus, you know, in, in many ways, right? Where you're training data 
is created under certain circumstances. But then once you start to act on, I guess it's a variation of Goodhart's law, right? Where the minute you start acting on information, then the quality of that information almost immediately starts to degrade. I, I remember I, I did, did, did something for a hedge fund and these um, machine learning experts were hired, brought in by the hedge fund to try to invest and, and make money based on patterns. And these folks had been like brilliant machine learning folks who had been able to do voice recognition and all this stuff. And, and they, they couldn't figure out why, you know, every time they found a pattern, it disappeared, right? And, and of course, you know, finance is a little bit different than, say, voice recognition. Yeah, so the finance, like, seeking out arbitrage is, is the, maybe the most extreme example. Oh, great data science. We discovered you could have made money doing this trade in the 1970s. Well, but once that got published in the journal of finance, it went away, right? You couldn't do it in the 80s. But that same concept applies more generally. And, you know, and, and we were talking, you know, before recording about the relevance of game theory for, for data science, which, which is not obvious to a lot of people. But, you know, so when you try to measure something in the world to dis deciding whether to do something, right? And so if that's an isolated decision, you know, if you're living on an island and you're trying to decide, should I go get the coconuts or the bananas or something? Yeah, sure. You can do an experiment and figure it out. The trees aren't going to grow in a different direction, you know, once you decide. But in the real world, if you're deciding to do something, like let's say you're, you're, you're testing the effect of, say, lowering your price. So you, you, you reach out to a randomly selected small set of customers and you see how they respond to this lower price. And then you construct your demand curve and you maximize profits, right? Well, once you change your price for everyone, well, now your competitor might change their price. If they lower their price, well, what? Your, your previous demand curve is wrong and you just lost money, you know? And, and, but more generally, we want to think about the data itself can be generated through a game. So here's an example that I sometimes use. So say, say you're launching a new service. Okay. So let's say it's like a concierge style service. Okay. So you're going to be taking on some clients and providing them with some costly services, but then you're going to monetize that relationship somehow. And you're trying to figure out if this makes sense. So what you do is you go out and you find some randomly selected set of people and you offer this service and you kind of measure how costly it is to provide the service to them. You measure how much you can monetize. Okay. And, and you figure out whether you should launch the service. Now you launch the service. And guess what? The people who decide to sign up are not a randomly selected sample. They might be the pain the ass people who cost a lot. And so your service costs are high, but your monetization might be the same. Or, or, or And so you're now losing money when you were expecting to make money or vice versa. Move, movie pass. Remember movie pass? Is that the way you're okay. So, that, yeah, but that's the point is, is that the data is generated by people's decisions. So in this case, the relevant decision is mm -hmm. seeking out the service and signing up. So that's a choice people are making, and that results in a selection. So you have a selected sample of people who actually are buying your product. And, and if you think they're like a game theorist, that's gonna be obvious to you, and you're going to be accounting for it and uh, preparing for mm -hmm. it. So you'll design your experiment differently. So yeah, so data science is not just about, well, how do we collect data? How do we find patterns? It's like, you actually need uh, to have a model in your head, if you will, of how people make decisions and how the data is generated. I'll just say one last thing that's important where game theory comes in is that if you're trying to do something big, so it's not just you're like tweaking something a little bit, but you are introducing a new thing like MoviePass, you have to think about how what you're doing will change the broader game. Okay, and so we, we talked about Prisoner's Dilemma as one of the most important games. The other most important game is called the coordination game. 
It's like there would be these two equilibria, the one called the status quo and the one I'll call the new thing, okay? Like the new world. And if you're just it's measuring little tiny changes, you're constantly going to be going back to the status quo because the status quo is like really attractive. So if you just, you know, a few people, you convince a few people to try something new, they're going to fail. Okay, but if you do something big, we, all, we might move to that new world equilibrium and then we're all better off. So you need game theory to imagine the big change, right? So you will never get there if you're just measuring around yourself and making little incremental things. To make big change, dramatically make the world a better place, you need to have the vision that comes from the game theory. And then going back to that storytelling, you need to be able to convince people, yeah, this is going to work, right? And then so they actually do it. So that, that highlights the limits of kind of A-B testing on the margin. A lot of us are taught, teach that business folks should just, you know, A-B test everything. But, yeah, you know, you're just going to get stuck. to the top a, of the hill you're on. That, that's great. But there's like Mount Everest over there and you're like sitting here over in like near Duke, you know, like on a little hill. Well, Durham's kind of flat, but. There, there's, uh, there's a few but, hills. There's a few hills. <laughs> But, you know, it reminds me of a couple of friends of mine started a HR analytics firm for recruiting, and they found that one of the most powerful predictors of your, your productivity and your performance and your longevity was which browser you used to um, apply for the job. Like that was so incredibly powerful, it overwhelmed almost every other variable. And they were so excited to discover this that wound up the Economist did a piece on it, and you know the Wall Street Journal covered it, and you know there was there was there was all sorts of publicity around it, and and I was thinking, well that's not good, right? You just killed the, the signal, oh, right? right? right. I mean, oh, I thought you tell me, and so they made everyone at work use that browser, which would be even more blind to the game. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So if that article was well read, now everyone's going to be applying to that browser. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Or another example of this is my colleague, Steve Tadellis, right? And I think you, you reference him in the book. He did some A-B testing around the use of a paid search, right, at eBay and discovered that the paid search was not really adding as much value as people thought, right? Because when the paid search was shut off, everybody just went to the organic search and you didn't really lose any sales. But of course, that presupposes that Google does keeps that same slot more or less open, right? Because if you stop buying the paid search, then someone else might come along and buy the paid search, and then the organic search might not be as lucrative. Right. Yeah. So another example where you, you want to anticipate what the competitor response could be. But in a lot of cases, the, the, if you think the game theory would, would give you a direction. So in that example, you'd say, well, you know, if anything... The, the void we create by stopping to advertise this channel will be filled. Like, so the worst case is, is that it, it can be worse than what we're estimating, but you know, it'll never be better than what we're estimating. So at least it gives you a bound. So you, you can, you can make meaningful inferences still, you know, but, but you also know what you need to learn that's, that can guide other, other complementary ex experiments. Well, you mentioned war games and military obviously, you know, uses these war games and sometimes companies will do like hacking competitions to try to test their security. But you also mentioned that most business decision makers, they, they don't really stress test their strategic plans and they don't really try to imagine the response that other players are going to make to their decisions. 
Why do you suppose that is? I mean, it just seems so, so obvious, right? I mean, if you're, if you're a, f- a football team and you're not thinking about how the, the, the other team is, is going to re- respond to whatever strategy you roll out, then, you know, you're going to have a very, very short career as a coach, but, but, you know. Okay. You know, leaders- let's stick with that. Let's stick with that. You may be aware. So David Romer, the renowned macro economist, he has this paper on football. And it was, it was a remarkable paper. And I think NBER paper, I don't know where it got published. Huge impact though on the, on how football is played. What he did is he, cause in football, you have observability of everything that happened, right? Like how the ball moved. And so what he did is came up with a way of quantifying odds of winning based on what you did. And so should you go for it on fourth down? Should you go for the touchdown from the three yard line? And he showed that not going for the touchdown from the three-yard line, as an example, going kicking its head is a huge, like a huge blunder. But coaches are doing that all the time. And so you would think that coaches would have an obvious incentive to optimize. So your story would be, well, how is this happening? They must just not have the math well. And that's one possibility. But even after that paper was published and got well known, there are a few maverick coaches that were starting to behave differently. But most coaches continue doing uh, conservative play. And so what the heck is going on? Well, I opined in this piece that I wrote on Super Bowl Sunday one, one year that maybe part of the game is, again, coaches are playing with their fans. So if fans believe that, well, the, what we expect you to do is get the field goal, okay? And you choose to behave against the standard behavior. We're going to pay attention to the consequences of that. And if we lose by less than three points, we will blame you. However, we won't remember like the times where we win by, you know, that when you get that touchdown, we won't be, you know, so, so to the extent that the fans are, are judging them and their contracts depend on the fans' belief in their abilities, then they might have an incentive to stick with that status quo equilibrium. Okay. But what's interesting, what happened is, over time, the analysts started figuring out ways to code this in. So now ESPN has a web page where they rank all the coaches based on basically blunders. So they come up with a number. Like, you know, when you're playing poker and you're trading yourself, like, go to or I might use back of it, they'll say, like, oh, this move costs you 2%, right, of your win. And right? so you can measure how much you've screwed up and you can quantify it. And they're doing that. It's like, this guy screwed up this much. He's the worst coach in the NFL. So now suddenly none of the coaches want to do that. So we had a third party who came in and just flipped the arrows. So now the coaches have kind of a, an incentive to, to be a lot more aggressive. And so to the extent, same thing could be to some extent happening in business. If you're a leader and you take some idiosyncratic different path and you, you fail, people will blame you. You know, so it's sort of like the, the, you know, hiring Tom Cruise for a movie. So that, that's the story. story. Even it's not optimal, it's what's going to be good enough, you know, uh, to meet an expectation. Right. And so in business, the uh, shareholders are the folks and the analysts are the folks that essentially are the ones evaluating the decision making. And so if one goes against conventional wisdom, even if it's the sensible thing to do, you'll be penalized uh, disproportionately if it, if it goes wrong. It could be, and right. but that's just, that's a function of the health and the, you know, the games going on amongst that analyst community, for example. So, you know, you could imagine there's an opportunity there. Like if you have an unhealthy, dysfunctional analyst community that's encouraging managers to make bad decisions, well, you know, maybe there's a, 
disruptive opportunity to change that game. You know, so like that's where I start come start thinking. Like, is there a dramatic opportunity for improvement here for us to upturn everything and, and to, to you know to to change a whole ecosystem? So you know, that's what I was doing in that book and those examples. And you know, that's what jazzes me up the most about game theory. It's like it just encourages you to think big and think creatively. You know, so so yeah, I don't have a specific idea on how to turn around the analyst community. I never thought about it, but if there's a listener out there who's thinking about that, you know, I'd love to 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 hear about these challenges or the more possible the the better in my opinion. Well that sounds like something uh, that could be a good project for your class. I'm actually yeah, if I ever wrote another book, yeah, yeah. And the students love would love those applications. It yeah. definitely really their experience. Now at the beginning of my strategy class, I, I always say, you know, what's the difference between strategy and just sort of, you know, operations? And I usually say, well, you have to be dealing with other conscious strategic beings. And so it's usually limited to kind of war and business and sport. But then I, I often will use examples. Strategy is when you're trying to accomplish a goal and there are others out there that, you know, may have interests in alignment and may in con- maybe in conflict with what you're trying to do and therefore or trying to disrupt what you're trying to accomplish. That, that's what makes strategy different. And so we, we normally think that you're where the agent is, is a virus, right? Or the agent is another animal, right? And so, you know, we use all sorts of animal models. And, and of course, biology is, an, is a domain where game theory has gained a lot of game theory and strategy have to offer with respect to how one can deal with a public health crisis or a, a, a pandemic like this one. And you have a whole chapter in the book about popularity. And in fact, a lot of the insights like evolutionary stable strategies come from from biology. So, you know, I'm teaching a course this semester on, on the pandemic. And it seems like there's a lot of insights that, that antibiotic resistance, I don't, I don't, you didn't anticipate like a global pandemic, but, but there's, there's lots of insights, I think, that you could take from game theory that maybe weren't taken by policymakers. Could, and could you could talk a bit about that? Like if you had to give sort of a game theoretic review of the pandemic. We could do a whole other pod. I mean, I love what we've done in this podcast. It's been yeah. really interesting and nice sort of motivation for game theory. We could do a whole nother episode on this because this is what I've been passionate about and working on actively for 10 years now. So when I was writing that uh, chapter, it's about antibiotic resistance, a seemingly impossible strategic challenge. I was actually... Uh, in the hospital room in a happy moment because my third child had just been born. And I had that moment of, you know, several hours where the mom is like knocked out and you're the dad just sort of sitting there with nothing to do. And I I had this light bulb moment where I realized that antibiotic resistance, the rise of that, this untreatable you know, diseases, is the result of a game. And the way everyone was thinking about it was wrong. Okay, so people think about it this way. They say, ah, well, we each have an incentive to treat ourselves with antibiotics and our doctor has an incentive to help us by treating us. But when we do that, we promote resistance and the bacteria are more likely, the ones that are resistant will spread and then we're all, we're all doomed, okay? No more cancer therapies, no more transplantations, no more cesarean section. You know, so it would be really bad, okay, if these things ran amok. But then I realized that that was actually wrong. And it's true, right? It, at that point in 2012, when I had that idea, prescribing antibiotics did promote resistance. But the reason it did is that we weren't catching the resistant infections. We couldn't detect them. But if you can detect 
which bacteria can be easily killed and which cannot, you can do other stuff to the bacteria that are hard to kill. Like you can isolate the patient, for example. So if we have a diagnostic, rapid diagnostic, nowadays we know these things exist because we do them all the time. Like immediately we can see like, are we pop COVID positive? But back then in 2012, hardly anyone had heard about this. So I thought to myself, man, if only there was a magical technology that could read the genetic code of the bacteria, then we could solve this because we could take all the resistant bacteria and hit them really hard and then put them at a Darwinian disadvantage relative to the easy to kill ones. And we could reverse resistance, in quotes, reverse resistance. And so like penicillin, for example, could make a comeback. We could use penicillin again instead of these like really expensive drugs. So that took me down a rabbit hole that led me to interact with, you know, epidemiologists, antibiotic chemists, all these sort of people. And I've been publishing mainly in those fields. Like I've published relatively little economics over the last several years. And that in turn has led me to work on, you know, these issues related to the pandemic when that emerged. Because, but anyway, so I could go on and on. But the point is, is that you can apply game theory in lots of domains. You've talked about a lot in the business world and so on, culture. But you don't need to have a brain for the principles of economics and the principles of game theory to apply. In fact, it's remarkable. Microbes have figured out ways to gain advantage and also to cooperate. So the hardest to treat, you know, infections are these ones that form these things called biofilms. But a biofilm is actually a little city. It's exactly like a city. It's got little roads. It's got people who don't take out their trash and it causes a problem for everyone else. One of the things the bacteria do is they actually build little towers, like little apartment complexes. But the best place to live is on the top floor. So if you're a slacker and you're on the bottom floor, guess what? Everyone builds on top of you and you suffocate and die. So imagine that. It's like the rat race to the next level. You gotta be constantly building the city, otherwise you get smothered. So they have solved these, these, these strategic challenges in many creative ways. They communicate and you know, so if anything, the bacteria, you can almost apply economics and game theory to them with more confidence than humans. Because humans have so much going on. Like, we don't even know what our motivations are. They're very complex. And they can be socially constructed. Like, they can change. Whereas for bacteria, like, the ones that survive are the ones that survive. It's like, the, it's as if they're seeking to maximize survival. You know, so you can actually apply economics uh, to these microbial worlds. But that's something that very few people have done. So it's pretty exciting to be one of the, the first kind of trained economists to be applying these, these skills in this area. Well, it's actually easier to apply to creatures because the, their objective functions, as you say, are, are known. And, and so it's, it's pretty clean. Right? We, I mean, we, I wouldn't go kinda... that far. Once you learn about stuff, you learn about the remarkable complexity of, of life. Yeah. And so there's layers and layers. Like, you know, when you learn about Darwin's theories of selection, and then you realize, oh, wait, there's different levels of selections. There's genes, and then there's, you know, there's hosts, and then there's tribes, and, you know, there's all these levels, and you're like, oh, okay, it's much more complicated than I thought. You know, and plants are totally different than animals. Well, when we think about the biofilms, for instance, I mean, what you're trying to, what you're trying to do is basically apply some antitrust law, right, to the, to the bacteria. You're trying to 
disrupt their their collusion so that pit them against one another so that you can more yeah, easily yeah, yeah. kind so, of wipe them out right yeah yeah so let me tell you i'll just give you an example i know we've been talking a long time oh, you probably edit down some stuff that's that's funny but there's a really cool idea here's an idea this biologist had that's a total game theory flex but he didn't realize he was doing game theory i ultimately recruited that guy to join my paper so he helped me get it published this thing on reversing resistance named sam brown amazing theoretical biologist here's an idea he had on how to how to beat uh, biofilms so a lot of times the way the biofilm works is you have these little bacteria that live in this thing called planktonic phase where there's floating around it. And eventually they put down roots and they invest resources to start building the city, like the little frontiers with, okay. How do they know when to do that? They only want to build the city when there's enough of them around. So there's a quorum sensing, so right? They have this thing called quorum sensing. Okay, so you're aware of that. So there's a chemical, you think about it as like, there's a chemical they release and then they detect the chemical. Okay. And so when they did, it's like smell, like when the place stinks, I start laying down the roots. Like I smell the body odor, I start laying down the roots. And so how do you block that? Well, he had this idea, well, what if we had a treatment and instead of killing them, blinded them or made them unable to smell? Okay. So now they won't be laying down roots. That, that, that makes sense. But it's not just that. This, this uh, could conceivably be resistance proof. Let's think about it like if you have something in way of blinding everyone, so no one is putting down roots, they're all wandering around, you know, the frontier. And then some guy is born with a mutation that gives him sight. Okay. And he sees all these people wandering around. So he starts laying down roots, but he's a mutant. He's the only one laying down roots. So he's actually suffering and he dies and everyone else is living in a platonic state because it's a coordination game. You only want to lay down roots if everyone else is laying down roots. And so we're in the stable status quo of everyone being blind. So in principle, that could be resistance-proof treatment, whereas killing treatments are never resistance-proof in principle, because if, if some way they mutated a way to survive, the survivor would spread, right? So killing treatments, antibiotic treatments, we always have to worry about resistance. But, but these quorum blocking treatments, uh, the game theory, that's just fundamentally different. Right. And so one thing that happens with pathogens is that, you know, sometimes if they're non-vector born, they have a tendency to become milder with, in terms of how they, you know, Man, treat the host. Yeah. It's not that simple, sadly. I, I wish, I wish this was not viewed as conventional wisdom. Another one of my co-authors is guy Andrew Reed, uh, this parasitologist. He has this amazing study where he looked at these chickens and there's this chicken virus. So basically the, the host and the parent and the parasite in general, the virus would be a parasite, they're co-evolving. So let's say you have a virus that emits some harmful toxin that causes a response that like changes the animal to spread the virus and maybe it pusses out or who knows what it does, coughed up. As they increase that harmful thing, the, the host is going to evolve so it doesn't hurt as, as much. And then like make a neutralizing antitoxin. Then, then the virus or whatever will, will make more of it. They'll make more of it. And so the chickens will seem like they're moderately sick, but then you introduce one of those evolved chickens into, uh, so the virus is not getting more severe. It's staying the same, or maybe it's getting less severe because the chickens seem to be living it out. But then you take one of those chickens over to a new flock and that thing has co-evolved to the toxicity is ridiculous. And that new flock just like drops dead, like in dates. Would you say that virus is milder? It's milder in the co-evolved group. I wouldn't say it's milder because it's just killing the, the naive, the unevolved chickens like crazy. So it's not true that viruses get milder and they can get 
there's plenty of examples where they get more severe. But anyway, this is one of the many things I've learned as I've had to delve into these, these areas. So, but if you're designing a public health policy that's meant to address something like a pandemic, understanding the different tools that you have in your toolbox, right, which include sort of, I don't know, manipulating evolution through uh, restricting human mobility and infectious vectors and stuff right. like that. I mean, yeah. that's, that's all building on game theory, right? And game theory is, uh, 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 it's important uh, to bear in mind. It can give you ideas. You know, I think that, you know, one thing about game theory, as I mentioned, it's like ultimately a storytelling tool. And when I tell you back the story for like some microbial thing, let's say I'm talking to some biologist or public health person, global health person, and I tell the story, ultimately it's going to be in regular language. And they're going to say at the end, yeah, I knew that already. Okay, so I'm not claiming that game theory is going to like revolutionize biology. It's just that it highlights aspects of biology that people already were talking about. Co-evolution is like, it's not like a game theory idea. But when you're thinking through a game theory lens, it helps you understand the co-evolution processes you see, and it helps you prevent. And it gives you ideas. Well, if we could change this, maybe it's co-evolving this way because, but what if we change that? And we manage so much of the earth now, like so many living things are to some degree under our control of the conditions they live in, which create evolutionary pressures. And evolutionary change changes economics, changes the value of these resources. So in, you know, in a recent, this PLOS biology paper I co-authored, we look at the economics of managing evolution. So, you know, thinking about being intentional in how, you know, we shape the games that these living things are playing, bearing in mind that, you know, the direction that system goes impacts us, it impacts an individual, say farmer, but also it impacts the broader, broader society in a variety of ways. So yeah, I think economics and the game theory perspective is really important to add to that. I, I think we can be helpful in prioritizing and also coming up with some novel ideas to try things that wouldn't have come naturally to, to the experts in those fields. So when we're thinking about the folks that we, we're cranking out of our, our business schools that are going off into the world, we're always thinking, you know, what do we want them to know? And, and I think it's less what do we want them to know at the end of the semester and more what do we want them to walk around with for the next 30, 40 years. And, and I think one thing we can all agree on is that kind of you know, systems thinking is really important, just kind of understanding the big picture and how the little how the individual parts kind of fit together. Do you think that, that game theory is really an integral part of that whole program of kind of baking in systems thinking into into the the conscious and subconscious of our decision makers? I, I think the art of game theory is, okay? So what, if, if you're trying to exactly mathematically model something, you're gonna get all screwed up if you start. And you're gonna inevitably overly simplify the world to fit their ability to model it. So, but the art of game theory, so what I do in our, in my, when I teach, we do these cases and ultimately every case starts with a blank piece of paper. And then we start putting down players and we start drawing arrows and we start drawing, explaining little motivations. So like we get a wall of what I call a strategic ecosystem. Okay. And we start understanding feedbacks, critical points. Like, so the original problem that we wanted to fix, like going back to an example that the emergency physician is prescribing opioids uh, inappropriately. Ultimately, we point to a private equity firm that bought a survey company, 
right? That ultimately, like, that's the gate and maybe some inappropriate influence or some government decisions. I don't want to, I, I hinted that in some of the footnotes. I, I mean, but anyway, so, so that game is ultimately what we really want to be focusing on and changing. So if you, if you map out the system and the feedback loops and, and the, and also the thing about that's so valuable at game theory, I think that adds to kind of the systems thinking you get in operations management things is that the motivations of players all depend on the actions of others. Okay. And so if we change some behaviors over here, it, it changes the reasons why decisions are being made somewhere else. So that's like a fundamentally different like thing. It sort of adds a whole layer to understanding these feedbacks uh, that you might miss. So yeah, so I, and when I said the other thing, but I'll say the other thing that game theory gives is that you have this, so we always say that with this remarkably complicated ecosystem picture, which is like, ah, right. It's like, oh my God, there's heroes everywhere. But what game theory also does is that you then say, okay, why did we make this picture? We made this complicated picture because we were interested in solving that issue, that problem right there over in this corner. And looking at this picture, we can identify maybe two or three places that look really promising. And if we can make a specific change in those places, using the ideas of game theory, so like change that game somehow, like change the timing, the moves of that game, or change the motivation, bring in a third party right there. We can then focus on that. And so now we draw a simpler picture. We zoom in on that particular thing. So it really can focus your efforts as well as expanding your point of view. And so while it helps you to design solutions, it also makes you aware of how the solving of that solution can create new problems that are going to need new the solutions. Problem, but right? also new opportunities for others. So you can find allies that you might never have thought of because they're like unrelated, seemingly to the, the thing you're trying to solve. Tool, exercise, way of thinking that, well, David, thank you so much for joining me. I think you're, you're absolutely right. I think game theory is, is a wonderful, illuminates so much. And so really appreciate you joining. Here's the book, Game Changer. Now, are you going to come up with nine more of these for each of the different no, games? No, I had a plan. I had a plan. No, I had grand dreams that Game Changer would be this, you know, a uh, big hit. You know, most of your readers haven't heard of it. They've heard of Freakonomics. They haven't heard of Game Changer. I wish it weren't so. But if if it had been like a baby Freakonomics for Game Theory, I would have totally written another one. I had it planned out. It would have been on the coordination game. But no, alas, it, it hasn't sold that many copies. And I have a lot of things to do. So no, maybe you can... I may never do enough unless sales take off. Like right now, <laughs> I, I could be enticed uh, to write another one. But yeah, no, um... But, you know, you get a lot, you get a sense of a variety of ways of approaching games that you could have deployed beyond the Prisoner's Dilemma. So it's not only about the Prisoner's Dilemma, it's more like Prisoner's Dilemma is my hook to explain to you, oh, here's ways of changing mm -hmm. games. And once you internalize those, you can use them for other games. Well, well, perhaps you can write a book on just the public health aspects of game theory. That would be, I think, super, super useful. Well, I'm trying to actually do stuff in the world first, and then I can always write a book reflecting on it. So. Thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity. It's been fun. All right. We'll talk again soon. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, 
please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.